Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you today with episode 578 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Monday, uh, and this is going to be a great show. It's the Monday show, so it's your uh, your emails, uh, your commentary, and your questions that you sent to jack at com with the subject line, Question for Jack. The other thing that's going to make this a great show is it is the first show of 2011. First show of the new year. I took a week off. Um, I really needed to. I got a lot of stuff done. Site has been completely redesigned. I think it's uh, much better for navigation. I'll be dinking on it all week. There's some spelling and typos and stuff to be taken care of. There's some content that needs to be actually created. Uh, but the new site is going to be much friendlier, especially for the first-time visitor. And you guys don't want to share the show. You're going to have a welcome center. Uh, it's kind of sort of halfway done right now. Uh, but by the end of the week, it'll be completely done. You'll be able to send that link to new people, and they'll be able to get kind of started into the survival podcast way of thinking in the show and uh, do that with a much more easy to understand, especially for people that aren't really technical, that maybe don't have an iPod, think podcast means iPod, that type of thing. Um, the other reason I needed last week off, I don't know if you can tell already, but my voice is shot. Uh, my wife has once again infected with me with some kind of crud from that medical office of hers. I think that's the thing I'm going to look forward to most when she quits her job and we move up to Arkansas next month is uh, her no longer bringing random crud home for me to be infected with. Um, I am not better. My voice still sucks, but I had a week off, and you know what? I'm going to be back, and I'm going to fight through it with you guys. I'll be drinking coffee, pausing the mic once in a while, so I can do that. Uh, but with that said, let's go ahead and get today's show kicked off, starting out with the housekeeping. housekeeping. Housekeeping item number one. Let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, MERSradio.com. That's actually MERS-radio.com. I love MERS Radio. Uh, MERS Radio is an unlicensed um, group of five channels with five sub-channels each. And what that means for you is that you can get a set of MERS radios. You have secondary communications. And even though anybody can use them, they're a lot less used than the family radios uh, like you find at the sporting goods stores and things like that. So you have more uh, more of an expectation of privacy. Range is limited to about one to two miles uh, with standard handsets. Now, there are antennas that you can get that go on, like, vehicles that will extend that a little bit more. But it's really a short-range uh radio system. Now again, that's good because it limits, you know, how many people out there would be hearing what you're doing anyway, especially in a remote location. The beautiful thing though is you can add security to these systems. There's motion detectors that run on the same frequencies you can put out on your property and they let you know if someone or something happens to be out there uh, messing around in any given area. And with that, you know, you're able to know, hey, somebody's coming in the back gate or somebody's coming up the road. There's also sensors that will work with these systems that only detect vehicles. So you can have something that will detect anything moving, uh, like let's say an animal or a person, or you can have something that will ignore animals and people and only detect vehicles if you wanted to put it on a road that was maybe a private road approaching your property. Great way to combine those systems. And, of course, you can have the handhelds and a base station sitting on a table somewhere in the house, plugged into the wall, always on. Great system. Really recommend you look into it. Next up today, uh, Berkey Water Filtration Systems at Directive21.com, better known as the Berkey Guy. The Berkey Guy is one of the leading resellers of Berkey equipment in the United States. And what does that mean for you? That means you can get the best pricing along with some of the best services I've ever seen from the Berkey Guy. His website, again, Directive21.com. Really consider you know, one of your 2011 resolutions, if you don't have it, getting a water filtration system into your home. And I can't tell you a better system to look at than the Berkey system. Next up, remember to check out our gear shop. We have, you know, all kinds of really cool stuff coming into the gear shop. Probably the coolest thing that we brought in recently are the AOCS Copper Rounds, uh, the Survival Podcast Copper Rounds. Uh, just an amazing, beautiful design by Sister Wolf. They sell from anywhere between a dollar twenty-five for a few of them down to a dollar a piece if you get them in quantity. Um, absolutely gorgeous co coins. 
selling like crazy. We've sold over 7,000. They're actually minting the first run this week. So we sold 7,000 before we even shipped them. And uh, we've upped the run count from 10,000 to 11,000. There will be a little bit of inventory after they come in, but not a lot. If you want them, I would get them now. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that and get exclusive content available only to members. Lots of discounts and other good stuff. Quick update on the MSB before I go on. Some of the codes from some of the vendors have expired at the end of the year. Uh, obviously, last week was a slow week to be able to get a hold of people. Uh, the, the vendors that are expired on their discount codes that you've emailed me about, I will take care of this week. We'll either get new codes or we will remove them if they no longer wish to participate. With that, let's go ahead and get on to the main topic of today's show, which, of course, are your questions and emails. And again, I apologize for my voice. I'll do the best I can here for you guys. I'm not letting any more time go by without another show. Before we uh, take that first question, though, I wanted to let you guys know some of the stuff that's going to be coming up this week. I don't know if I'm going to get her on this week, but I've been talking to Patriot Nurse off of YouTube. We're going to definitely have her on uh, either this week or next week. Tomorrow, uh, I'm going to be doing a pretty interesting show. I'm going to be talking about uh, permaculture tomorrow. Probably a lot of stuff I've talked about before, but I looked and it's been over 100 episodes since we've really gone into permaculture, and that is a huge thing for a lot of the, the turmoil that we're going to be talking about uh, in today's show alone. Uh, there's a lot of really hard stuff coming. I think times are going to get worse. They're going to look like they're going to get better for a while. I've been saying that, but but the reality is we're in a decaying situation, and we're going to have to take care of ourselves. Uh, and everybody looking at this from a real high level is saying there's going to be more of an agrarian life to be led. I think we should get started on that now. It's going to be necessary, so I'm going to do that. Another thing I'm going to talk about on the show this week is um, herbology. And I'm going to talk about herbology a little bit different way. Instead of giving you a bunch of herbs and what they do, I'm going to talk about the actions of herbs, like astringent, expectorant, uh, all these. When you read a, an herb guide and you see all these terms, and, you know what, that, what does that mean? What does it mean as an astringent? And what is what does that do for you? So that'll be another show that we'll have this week, probably Wednesday. Hopefully my voice will hold out and it'll be a great show. Now let's go ahead and take that first uh, email. Okay, this first one comes from Joey. And what Joey says is, uh, Jack, if you were looking to make a career change to computers, what fields would you be interested? What, if any, sectors in computers have a good outlook to you? Um, there's a lot of opportunity right now in networking at a high scale. Uh, especially in the telecom sector, as carriers are moving to like, you know, 4G, LTE, things like that. But that's a long educational road. Um, and it's not really like you go to college for that. It's, a, it's, it's about getting a first job kind of in the sector and getting on the job experience. And it's tough and you're going to travel and there's money to be made there. But it's also, I think, a limited time opportunity. Um, and there's a lot of networking type things that I think are that way that, um, what we're seeing with networks across the across the world is um, low-level positions maintaining them, high-level positions installing them and setting them up, and those high-level positions of installing and setting up are dropping in how smart you have to be to do them because we're making the equipment more and more plug-and-play. So that's not where I – my whole point of that is it's not where I would go. I would look at programming. If I was going to go into computers today from the ground up and you said, what should you do um, – you know, I'm going to leave out like the internet marketing thing and all because that's not really a computer thing. It's like, that's the thing where you use the computer for the job, but the job is not really about the computer. I, I know how to write maybe five lines of PHP code and do a little bit of PHP code editing and um, can play around with WordPress and stuff like that and some basic design and all. But none of that to me is really a computer career. That's just the little bit that I do that I don't pay somebody else to do. Programming to me is where it's at because you're actually the person that's controlling the computer uh, at, at a level of, you know, like an instructional level. You're actually the one that builds the architecture. And the other side of this is if you learn how to put in great big giant scalable networks and one day you're out of a job, it's really hard to sit at home and freelance that skill set. It, it really is. Um, what you're going to have to do is travel somewhere where work is or things like that. If you can program, if you can program really well, then you always have an opportunity to outsource or build something of your own to sell. So I would go with programming on that one. I know, folks, some people are going, that doesn't sound like a survival question. I want to kick off to 2011. Uh, let me tell you, folks, your career and your income sources and thinking ahead like that it's one of the biggest things you better be thinking about right now from a survival standpoint. 
Because unless you're already off-grid, unless you're already up in your retreat somewhere, and unless you're 100% self-sufficient, most of us still have to earn income. And we need to think about that. That's why March 1st is the interview, so it's probably going to be March 2nd or 3rd. I'll be playing it. I'm bringing Gary Vaynerchuk on the Survival Podcast. High-end business consultant, rock star in that world, uh, best known for a podcast about one. I bring him on the Survival Podcast. Why? Because I think you guys want to hear from him. And because the way you earn your daily bread is as intrinsic to our survival as anything else. Could that go away for everybody at some point? Sure it could. What's the most likely scenario, though? Uh, a pretty dismal one, but where there's still an economy of some kind. And people tend to t turn in down economies to luxuries. Let me, before I go forward, because there's going to be a lot germane to this as I go forward today. People tend to think that if you start to pressure Americans with income, the first thing they're going to do is cut their luxuries. I'm going to tell you it's the last thing they cut. The first thing they cut are their, their, um, their, their needs, their required spending. What I mean by that is they start turning off the lights more to cut the electric bill. They look for a different provider and cut the phone bill. They do everything they can. They drive less. They buy a car with better gas mileage. They cut the necessity first. And they hold on to the luxury. I know it's counterintuitive, but it's what they do. Would you like proof? Okay. Um, the All of the people in the need sectors had very flat to slow growth years in 2010. The top producing big stocks were things like IMAX theaters and Netflix. If you go out on the street today, everybody still has an Android or an iPhone. They might be on a reduced rate plan, but they won't give up the device. People tend to hang on to those luxuries, the feel-goods. There's still lines at Starbucks, big long ones. They might have closed a few stores, But the ones that were actually making money before the crash, they're still making money today. People hang on to their luxuries. That's one of the reasons I just gave this guy the advice to go into programming. If you can program, you can get into making games, and you can make get into making other things that enable entertainment. When people are broke, if they get extra money somewhere, somehow, they will still spend it on things to make themselves feel better. Um, on that note, the next email today comes from... A gentleman named Greg, Greg Cecil actually, he doesn't care if I tell you who he is, he's the guy that does the uh, RV103 blog, recently uh, retired early from NASA, travels all around the country now in an RV. He sent me an article that's on um, lourockwell.com, and the name of the article is 16 Shocking Facts About Student Loan, uh, the Student Loan Debt Bubble and the Great College Education Scam. Uh, let me read the first paragraph and in the, in the, some of the points, and then you can read the rest of it for yourself. And I want to talk to you a little bit about it. Um, it opens up, it's it, uh, subtitled, End of the American Dream. As you read this, there are over 18 million students enrolled at nearly 5,000 colleges and universities currently in operation in the United States. Many of these institutions of higher learning are now charging $20,000, $30,000, or even $40,000 a year for tuition and fees. That does not even count living expenses. Today, it is more, it is 400% more expensive to go to college in the United States than it was 30 years ago. 400%, folks. Most of these 18 million students have been told that, uh, told over and over that higher education is the key to getting a good job and living the American dream. They have been told not to worry about how much it costs. There's plenty of financial aid, mostly made up of loans available. Now our economy is facing the biggest student loan debt bubble in the history of the world. And our new college graduates enter the real world, they are finding out that the good jobs that they were promised are very few and far between. As millions of Americans wake up and start realizing that tens of thousands of dollars they spent have poured into their college educations and mostly was a, and was mostly a waste, there will be a great college will, will the great college education scam be finally exposed? Again, folks, I apologize for my voice. Let me read a few of the facts. Uh, the, the 16 facts here. I won't read them all, but a few of them. Uh, number one, Americans now owe more than $875 billion in student loans, which is more than the total amount that Americans owe on their credit cards. I want to stop on that one for a second. I want to really drive this home to you. See, the one saving grace about a mortgage debt is at least there's a house underneath it. There's a house there. And no matter what, that house is worth something. Even if it's in the, the dread, dreaded holes of Detroit, 
there's some dirt underneath it, it's worth something. Credit card debt is a problem because once I go out and buy my gizmo or gadget, there's absolutely no way for the creditor to repossess it. The debt is on me and me alone. It's up to me to repay it. And, you know, there's a, there's a point where I can declare bankruptcy and divest myself of that debt. So the creditor is naked in the wind. My understanding is you cannot, or repeat, cannot, in most cases, discharge student loan debt in bankruptcy. So you have to prove what they call undue hardship to do that, that you are in such dire straits that making any restitution on your student debt is going to put you and your family uh, in, you know, in eternal poverty. That's the only way you can do that. And because they'll take such small payments, because you can pay for the rest of your life as far as they're concerned, it's almost impossible to do. So the student loan debt, the, 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 uh, the loan grantor is not subject to the same risk with a credit card, but you know the old saying. Can't get blood from a stone. And what happens when we have 18 million new college graduates sometime in the next few years who can't get jobs? And, you know, and another way to look at this is, I know a lot of these guys that are doing, well, I'm going to save that because there's some other facts. I just wanted to point that out. We have the, the same type of situation today with student loans as we do with credit cards. In some ways, it's better for the, for the loan grantor. In some ways, it's worse. Because... As these people can't make money, it's going to be very hard for you to really get your teeth into them without a public outcry. Um, here's another one. Uh, number two, since 1982, the cost of medical care in the United States has gone up over 200%. 1982 till now, 200% increase in medical care costs. But college has gone up 400%. Number three, typical U.S. college student spends less than 30 hours a week on academics. Number three, again, the typical U.S. college student spends less than 30 hours a week on academics. Why do you think that is? Because they don't realize what they're doing to themselves, folks. They're getting all that free student loan money. They get enough to pay you know, even some living expenses with it. So they're staying in school for five, six, seven years to get a four-year degree. When if you really knuckle down, you can do it in three to three and a half. So it's making the total debt bigger. It's bringing them out into a workplace at an older age with less of a kind of a running start in at entry-level positions. Um, number four, the unemployment rate for college graduates under the age of 25 is over 9%. Well, that's as bad as anybody else. Um, let's skip ahead here. Number nine, in the United States today, 24.5% of all retail salespersons have college degrees. So basically, go to the mall, pick a department store, Walk in and start counting salespeople. When you get up to 20, you can bet that about 5 of those 20 have degrees from a higher education uh, institution. Total student loan debt in the United States is now increasing at a rate of approximately 2800, uh, $2,853.88 $2, per second. So here's the stu uh, student loan debt in the United States. Call it three grand and round it off. 3,000, 6,000, 9,000, 12,000, 15,000, right? We just went $15,000 in the greater college loan debt. Nothing compared to the U.S. government, but pretty pretty frightening. That that's Those are debts being accumulated by teenagers and many times their parents as co-signers. Um, in the United States today, 317,000 waitresses and waiters have college degrees. In the United States today, over 18,000 parking lot attendants have college degrees. Federal statistics reveal that only 36% of full-time students who began college in 2001 received a bachelor's degree within four years. Only a third completed a four-year degree in four years. According to a recent survey by 20-something Inc., a staggering 85% of college seniors plan to move home after they graduate. Folks, I've said it before. College is a scam in America today. There are people that should go right from high school to college and pursue a degree in a specific area. There are the students that are the top students. There are some students that struggled through, but they really know what they want, and they are good enough to get it done, and they should go struggle through too. But the vast majority of students that are going to college today are going because they were told that's what they should do. They really don't know why they're there. They really don't know the consequences of their actions. 
They're being handed money easily. They're going to be in debt for the rest of their life. The college graduate demographic is becoming the largest group of slaves ever created inside the borders of a free nation. Because they are going to be in hoc for 20, 30, 40 years or more. There are people that I know today that have had their student loans around so long, they might as well name it and consider it a pet. You really have to think, if you're a young person or advising a young person going to college today, why are you going and what are you looking to get from it? And if you cannot answer those two questions, go get a job in a retail store as a salesperson or a parking lot attendant or one of the other things or a bartender, or a waiter, or a waitress, or whatever that most of these people are doing right now when they come out of school. I have a very good friend, two boys, went off to Texas Tech, very expensive school to go to, competitive admissions, both of them came out with four-year degrees. Took around five and a half to six years each to do it, but they did it. Big loans, big debt, all that stuff going with it. One of them is now going to be a police officer for the city of Fort Worth. I don't think that's a bad thing, and generally speaking, to be a police officer anymore, you have to have a college degree. But if you're going to be a police officer, you might as well go your first two years of college to community college for a couple thousand dollars a year. And then finish your degree at an inexpensive school, and then go apply to the academy, if that's what you want to do. Criminal justice degree, that's really the place to go with it. And hey, it doesn't have to be expensive. The other one is on a management training program at Home Depot. I, I, I lie to you not. Both of them are good kids. Good young men, I should say. They're in their early 20s now. Aggressive, hardworking, determined. Got themselves through school. But that's what awaits them now. One has a degree in marketing. The other has a degree in finance. One's going to be a cop. One's going to be a Home Depot manager. you got to think about that. Um... So interesting article, again, I will link to it from the show notes. Again, came from, to be from Greg. Next up today, um, Stacy sends in an email. Vermont, this is an encouraging uh, piece here. Vermont is passing a, a sovereignty resolution about food production. Or at least a member of the Vermont legislature has introduced a food sovereignty resolution. And... Um, This is, uh, this is something to look at. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, actually as I read this, I'm not sure if this is actually introduced because it says, um, as your independent opposition candidate for Addison County and Brandon, I, Robert Wagner, endorse this resolution. So I don't know if somebody else introduced it because this article really doesn't say that. Um, so I don't know if this is actually in front of the legislature or is going to be put in front of the legislature. They're definitely looking for co-sponsors, so that would mean to me that it's in the legislature now. Because it says, uh, if you would like to co-sponsor this, please contact Jessica directly at the address below. So it sounds like it is in front of the legislature. Let me read it to you, though, and then I'll tell you what I like and what I don't like about it. <clears throat> the Vermont Resolution for Food Sovereignty. Whereas all people are endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and whereas food is a human substance, it is fundamental prerequisite to life, and whereas the basis of human sustenance rests in the ability of all people to save seed, grow, process, consume, exchange food, and farm products, and whereas we the people of Vermont have an obligation to protect these rights, as is the common and natural law, and in recognition of the state's proud agricultural heritage, and the necessity of agricultural, agricultural, ecological, and economic diversity and sustainability to a free and healthy society. Therefore, be it resolved that we the people stand on our rights under the Tenth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and reject such federal decrees, statutes, regulations, or corporate practices that threaten our basic human right to save seed, grow, process, consume, and exchange food and farm products within the state of Vermont, and be it further resolved that we the people shall resist any and all infringements upon these rights from whatever sources uh, that are contrary to the rights of the people of the state of Vermont. That's the end. That's the whole thing. What I like, I agree 100% with the sentiment expressed there. There's no doubt that this is probably in response to the Food Safety and Modernization Act, which was just passed by the lame duck Congress. I want to use a different D word there. You can figure out what it was. 
Um, I don't think that the that that bill is a major threat to very small farms under a half million dollars due to the tester amendment. It should not affect in-state commerce. It should not affect commerce within the states at all, but the federal government's overreached there before. This is kind of heading that off. But this is saying some other things. Basically, they're saying, you better never, like, folks, um, there's people that believe that that law prevents you from saving your tomato seeds. It doesn't, and that's stupid to believe that, because you haven't read it in the bill, because I read the whole, whole bill and it's not there. All right? It's just not. It's never been there. It's not going to be there. That bill is over and done with. But do I think that they might ever come after that someday? Sure. I believe that absolutely someday they might come after saving seeds, especially on larger scales. They're never going to take away your ability to grow a pepper in your backyard. If you believe that, please, please focus on something else. But they might take away the ability of any farmer to do that, you know, that has any size of a scalable operation. So this is heading that off. So I like that. It invokes the Tenth Amendment and the inherent right of people to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How could you object to that? My problem with it, it doesn't actually do a damn thing. If this gets passed and the Vermont governor signs it, it doesn't do a damn thing. It's like standing on top of your house and saying, I'm free, but then not taking any actions. There's nothing here that says any federal law that attempts to enforce this on the state of Vermont shall be seen as null and void within the borders of Vermont. Something like that. So, my problem with this thing isn't that it's not good, isn't that it's not spot on, it's that it has zero teeth. It's a meaningless resolution. If we're going to do stuff like this, I think that all of these state senators and state congressmen need to start looking to put some teeth into this stuff and basically say, this is our line in the sand. This, this, uh, this entry from Robert Wagner... Uh, for senator in 2012 in the state of Vermont. I'll link to it. And uh, it says this is the line in the sand. But the line in the sand only has a meaning if there's a consequence if the other party crosses it. So this thing can pass, become uh, recognized officially in the state of Vermont, and the federal government can come in and crap all over the state of Vermont, and they're going to have to stand on, under something different to actually, you know, call the county sheriff and push the feds out. I mean, that's what it might come to. If we're going to start talking about state sovereignty, and we're going to define limits of the federal government, we need to be willing to enforce the limit, or it doesn't mean anything. So I like it. Again, you can read it and get more information about it. Um, but I, I think it's, it's a toothless resolution for right now and I'd like to see more of these state sovereign resolutions have some statement that you shall not do this in our state and if you do this will be our recourse until we get states doing that these things are nothing but ways to feel good about stuff so I, I did a show recently called the seven deadly cracks and there was an article that went along with it uh, called seven deadly cracks and the false recovery and then I just did an article last week, while I was shut down with the show anyway, called The Eighth Deadly Crack, and The Eighth Deadly Crack being about gas prices. We'll get to that later in today's show. But of the seven deadly cracks, one was that the states are about to go bankrupt, and another one is that the cities were about to go bankrupt. And in The Eighth Deadly Crack, which maybe I'll do a show on that this week too, or maybe next week, what gas prices really are going to cause to happen in the coming years. Um... I also mentioned that cities and states would be kind of dogpiling onto this eighth crack, the, the gasoline. And I went back through some things and talked about some of the cities and states that are actually on the verge of bankruptcy and some of the new reports out that we have. Well, somebody sent me this email. Again, the person's name is Dennis. And it's about a town in Alabama. Let me read some of this to you. Alabama town's failed pension is a warning. Pritchard, Alabama, the struggling small city on the outskirts of Mobile, was warned for years that if it did nothing, its pension fund would run out of money by 2009. Right on schedule, its funds ran dry. Then Pritchard did something that pension experts say they have never seen before. It stopped sending monthly pension checks to its 150 retired workers, breaking the state law requiring it to pay benefits in full. Since then, 
Nettie Banks, 68, a retired preacher, police, and fire dispatcher, has filed for bankruptcy. Alfred Arnold, a 66-year-old retired fire captain, has gone back to work as a shopping mall security guard to try to keep his house. Eddie Ragland, 59, a retired police captain, accepted help from his colleagues, bake sales, and a collection jars after he was shot by a robber, leaving him badly wounded and unable to get his new job as a police officer at the regional airport. Far worse was the retired fire marshal who died in June. Like many of the others, he was too young to collect Social Security. When they found him, he had no electricity, no running water in his house, said David Anders, 58, a retired district fire chief. He was a proud enough man that he wouldn't accept help. And it keeps going on and on here. Um, and of course, we get all these sob stories, not to put the people down, just sob stories. This old person died cold and alone and in the dark because he wouldn't take help. And look at how bad this is. And this evil town is not paying the bills. This is the big problem in America today. Everybody wants to say how evil, how evil these governments are when they default or they cut benefits. Doesn't matter if they're good or evil, folks. Let me explain this to you. If I hand you $1,000 a month and that's all the money you get, and I tell you, you have to pay... $500 a month to four people and you have a reserve of a few thousand dollars for a little while, you can do that. But when the reserve runs out and the income no matter no longer matches the outgoing, you can't meet your obligations. No matter how much those people are dependent on you, no matter how much you love or care about them, no matter what you cry at night, if you only have a thousand coming in and two thousand has to go out, you have a couple choices. You pay half the people, or you pay everybody half the money. But since you have to exist too, that doesn't even work. So now maybe you need five hundred to exist on. Now there's only fifteen hundred that can go out because the money is not there. And if we start saying, "Well, screw the city," the city is the people. Screw the existing worker to pay the non-working person. That doesn't work. Without the existing worker, the city doesn't function. It can't tax and justify its income. So it still can't pay. It's inescapable. It's a trap of damnation. There is no way out except bankruptcy. Well, if it was just the city of Pritchard, Alabama, with 150 people, the total retired living workers from this city, 150 150 people bankrupted this entire town. Not by their act. I'm not saying they did anything wrong. I'm just saying their very existence, the pensions they were promised, too much for Pritchard to bear. Well, that was it. We had a couple Pritchards out there. Hell, we've bailed out, you know, AIG. We bailed out Goldman. We bailed out every Bank of America, Citibank. We bailed out Chevy. I mean, big deal. Send them a couple million bucks. Get them solvent. Let's go on with life. Sucks, but hey, got to take care of the old people, right? Well, the problem is it's not just Pritchard. It's hundreds and hundreds of cities that are about to do this same thing. On top of this, at least 30 of our states are getting close to the same place. Some of them are at the very edge of solvency, like Hawaii, California, New York. And there's other ones that are in bad shape, but those three, those three are in real trouble right now, folks. Indiana, this is in my 8th Deadly Crack article, Indiana is now trying to pass a law that would allow their cities to declare bankruptcy. Because right now, apparently in Indiana, a city can't declare bankruptcy. So the state is saying, yeah, we'll let you do it. And then the state will take control. So you're Joe Blow, Indiana, and you go bankrupt, and the state comes and takes receivership of the city. The state takes over the city. But Indiana's nearly bankrupt. So how is the bankrupt state of Indiana going to fix the bankrupt city of Joe Blow, Indiana through something called austerity. Here's the reality. This is cutting through the chase. This is how it's going to impact us as a nation, as a whole. Over the next few years, states, cities, and federal departments will begin to cut pension benefits across the board in the neighborhood of 20 to 30%. That's what's going to happen. And it, that is still a temporary fix. They're going to have to require more money to come out of the pockets of the individual, and less is going to go back to the people, and most of these pension funds are going to be put on a death, uh, kind of a death watch. 
the city, the state, whatever that has a pension, they'll dissolve the pension. They'll make people that are still working still put money in in some way, shape, or form, but those people won't get any pension. Or they'll get very tiny pensions as a, as a, a sucker hook, and they'll force them into 401k, IRA, that type of thing, and then they'll probably usher in the new government-protected 401k or government-protected IRA, where they hold your money literally hostage in the form of loans to the federal government. And they say that the federal government guarantees at least 25% of your account. So you'll have your 401k, you'll be able to probably control 70 to 75% of the money in it, 25 will be put into a lockbox, and basically that means you'll be forced to invest in treasury bonds. Something like that is what's coming. I can't guarantee the changes in the 401k IRA world. Don't freak out about your existing 401k or IRA. Don't go liquidate it. They're not going to do that with that money. If they go to try to do it, we'll have plenty of warning. You'll be able to pay the penalties and get it out. Keep an eye on it, but don't freak out about it. This is probably going to be rolled in as a new program. What they might do is eventually kill the old ones off. You can still have yours, but you can't open a new one. They might limit contributions to your existing one. Who knows? But they are going to force the people of this nation to bail out the federal government by us investing our future in the nation itself. And to, to curtail the complete collapse of society and all of these old people dying, they're going to get a third or more less money and they're going to kill off the pensions. They're going to bring austerity. And that means where we cut everybody's standard of living so that we can all make it. It's just like a company. You work for me and there's 10 of you. You all work for me, Jacko. And um, I look at my forecast for next year. And my revenue is going to be down a million dollars. I can't afford to pay all of you guys anymore. I can either lay off three of you, or I can cut everybody's salary by a third. And that's the choice. And as a business person, I get to make that choice. I can decide it's not fair for me to cut your salary because you work your ass off every day. And this guy next to you, I don't really need him, so I send him packing. Or I can say I've got, I've already done that. I've got the ten guys that stuck with me. And I hate to do it to you, but I can't. I'm going to take the cut too. Folks, when I was in business, I did this. There were times where I cut my salary, my personal salary for my own company to avoid cutting or to reduce the cutting of the salary of my other workers. This is a real decisions to get made by real business people. We're not all evil. But at a, at a city level of retired citizens, I can't lay off three. If I'm this little town... I can't go, I've got 150 retirees, I'll just lay 25 of them off. I've got to cut everybody's. That's what's going to happen. Because where did the pension money go? On some levels, not enough money ever went in there. On other levels, a lot of it was risked in the real estate market. And when the real estate market imploded, the city was holding the pension fund like a big gravy bowl. And we keep growing it and growing it and growing it. We pay our retirees, and whatever's left, we can spend some of that on the city. It's an investment pool until the pool collapsed because, you know, all the bankers and all their derivatives peed in the pool. So it's it's a combination of things. But what I'm telling you is, you better accept this. If you have somebody that is dependent on a, a, a pension from a state or city government, they're going to get a reduction in that payment. It's going to happen. Social Security is going to get cut sooner or later. Probably the last one, but it's going to happen. And once everybody else does it, then they're going to go, hey, we've got to do this at the national level too. Be prepared for some really bad things in 2011-2012. Austerity at the state and city pension level is going to be one of them. Uh, let's take another one. Richard from Pennsylvania sends me this one. Jack, recently I noticed in my town, Easton, PA, there are cameras monitoring all access points to the highways and bridges. As far as I know, nobody was ever asked if they wanted these. They just appeared over a two-week period. My wife and I have a heated debate about these. I'm against them. I feel like it violates the right of free travel. I can't imagine that the Founding Fathers would have approved of their use if they could have seen into the future. My wife, on the other hand, says they help solve crimes. If you have nothing to hide, they should not bother you. I was wondering what your opinion of these cameras is. First of all, your wife is naive. I'm sorry to put it that way, but she is. Okay, Cameras anywhere... And you say, well, if you're not doing anything wrong, they shouldn't bother you. That's not the point. So 
I would ask your wife, and I don't mean to be mean or anything, so should it be okay for me, if I'm a law enforcement officer, just show up at your house and go, Hi, ma'am, I'd like to go through everything in your house. If you're not doing anything wrong, there's nothing for you to hide. I mean, that really is, I've got the dog upset now. That really is the same thing. It really is. Being able to peer in, now, the, the difference is you're in a public place. Let me talk to you a little bit about these particular cameras, though. They're at highway entrance points. These cameras aren't for crime, and they're probably not to really pay attention to what you're doing on a daily basis. We have cameras just like this, and I sold um, the Tarrant County the some of the hardware back in my salesman days that run these cameras. And as part of working with the city to, to sell them this stuff, and don't think, oh, Jack's a black ops guy for the government now. I'm mean, just a guy out selling Ethernet hubs, hardened ones that can handle heat. And that was a, a place we could do some business. So I went into the traffic center where they actually have all the feeds of these cameras coming back into. And you know what people are doing? They're not paying any attention at all until there's a wreck. The ones on the highway entrances, the cities control the roads. The highways are controlled by the county and the state. So what they're actually doing with most of those cameras is when there's a wreck, they just kind of all switch around. Nobody's sitting there monitoring them. Oh, that guy went did this, that. No, they just don't care about that. What it is is once there's a wreck, they pull up the camera, they can see it, and they send responders to the wreck, and that's what those cameras are all about. There's cameras everywhere that are about a hell of a lot more than that, um, including the red light cameras that they're using to generate revenue uh, with people running. Well, here's the one that really has me upset, uh, Richard and everybody else, is these new speed cameras. Uh, there is um, these new cameras out, and places they're using them now, where the entire point is to catch you speeding. You know, when they first put up the uh, red light cameras, I was like, you know what they're going to do next? They're going to send you a ticket in the mail for speeding with the camera. And people said, no, nah, they won't go that far. These red lights are for safety. Come on, the government wants to help us. Well, now, uh, here's one particular in, in Baltimore County, uh, Baltimore, Maryland. They have cameras at, let's see, seven or something like that. I'll put a link to the the uh, in the show notes to this article. But they have several places where they have cameras set up now, and it's to stop speeders. And if you speed through the area, they send you a ticket in the mail. But they're doing it in school zones. See, this is how it always happens. I mean, you, you can call me paranoid, but this is how it always happens. It's always think of think of the children. Oh God, won't somebody please think of the children? Right? It's always how could you be opposed to this? They're just making sure that those evil people and their evil giant SUVs aren't running children over because every day in America, 1,400 children are run over by evil people in Humvees and school zones. I mean, literally, that's the angle these people are bringing this out with. You know what they're doing? They're test betting it. Does it work? How well does it work? How do people respond to it? The goal? The goal is not going to be you know, to eventually, now they'll do this in some areas, but the bigger goal is not going to be you're driving down I-20 between Grand Prairie and Dallas, Texas, and you go through an area and the camera takes your picture and sends you a ticket in the mail. That's too one-off, too irritating, it'll cause too much uproar from people, and it won't make enough money to make it worth putting them in everywhere. The reality is they won't even use cameras for this. They'll use the same sensors they use on turnpikes with toll tags now. What's going to happen in this country is we're going broke. Another revenue enhancement measure, because we keep getting more fuel-efficient cars, electric cars are coming, people that drive less than 100 miles a day won't even need a gas pump. So I don't care whether the person's still paying for the electricity or not. The government's not going to get the tax revenue. And, and the gas revenues, the gas tax revenues have been shortfalled across the board since 2008. People cut back their gas consumption in this country. That's what kept oil prices somewhat in check up till now. So governments everywhere, state governments, some local governments, and definitely the federal government are going, how do we make up for this shortfall? The solution is going to be national tolls. You're going to pay a toll just about every road you drive on. That's what's going to happen. At least every major road that you drive on, you're going to pay a toll on. To have a car... You know, most places you have to have a registration sticker on your window or your plate or whatever. It's going to get to where you're going to have to have a toll tag 
or something like it. An RFID card of some sort in your vehicle. Don't think it can't happen. Millions and millions of people have them voluntarily right now for convenience sake on the toll roads. That's how they'll sed government always seduces when it can. Right? People always think the government comes out and oppresses and ramrods stuff on people. Whenever seduction is an option, that's what they do. They will seduce people into this. They will start to do this. They will say on major highways, if you want to drive in one or two inside lanes that should be like HOV lanes, they won't be HOV lanes anymore. Now they'll be express lanes. And you can pay a higher toll and drive there. Or you can pay a lower toll and drive in one of the other lanes where they're all backed up on the major highways. And this will spread out to state highways, county roads, everything. Every place they can afford to put the sensors in, as long as they're charging you, they can put it in there. They will determine how fast you're going. And if you exceed the speed limit by a certain amount, they will put an addition onto your toll rate. That will become the new speeding ticket. Because they will be able to get you for every single mile over. They'll be able to put an adder function in there. Maybe from five miles over and up. They're going to do all of this stuff. Watch for it. Now what do you do about it? I don't know. I don't know. I think this thing has too much of a head of steam for us to stop it right now. Except for this fact. Every time somebody's going to do anything like it anywhere, never think it's just here and fight it. I mean, that's the only advice I can give you there. Let's take another one. My voice is strained. My blood pressure's up. Let me, I'm going to take a different question here that I had planned for the next one to get, you know, a little centered, think about things that are a little happier. Comes from Brian. Brian says, uh, I have a question about spring planting. Last year I built a bed and conditioned the soil. So this spring will be my first attempt at gardening outside of containers. My last frost date is May 21st. I'm in zone five. Uh, and he gives me a link to his plant maps area. I have picked out some plants to start early in spring. Carrots, broccoli, cauliflower, lettuce, spinach, and radishes. The seed instructions say to plant three to four weeks prior to the last frost. That means I can't get any plants in the ground until April. I won't be harvesting anything till May or June. My frost first frost date is October 2nd, so I only get about 15 frost-free weeks. I know I'm more limited than gardeners in Florida, but I thought I might be able to plant a little earlier. Do you have suggestions on planting times or planting types I could start with as early as possible so my production can run as long as possible? All right, here's the thing. Things like broccoli, carrots, beets, lettuce, spinach, radishes, all of that stuff can handle significant frosting. The problem is, if it's constantly in a frost state at night, and it doesn't get very warm during the day, it stunts its growth, and it can they can actually get killed, even broccoli, when it's tiny. So your solution, Brian, is to use floating row covers uh, or build a mini greenhouse over your bed or something like that, something you can vent, but just to keep a little bit extra CO2 and heat during the day on those plants, and then you can go earlier than a few weeks before your first frost date. Uh, right now it says three to four weeks for these types of plants. You could probably push that back to six weeks, seven weeks, and that's going to be a great extension. The other thing you can do is, you know, six or seven weeks out, any stuff that can be started indoors, started indoors, and then put it out under your floating row covers or your mini greenhouse or something like that, you'll do much better. So you can be starting stuff very, very soon, honestly, even in Zone 5, um, if you have proper places to make sure it gets good solar exposure and get it well-established and as hardy as possible. Maybe the best thing you... I'll tell you what, if I was in Zone 5, I wouldn't even think about whether or not I needed a greenhouse. I would get a greenhouse. And I would look at maybe one of these, like like my greenhouse that kind of failed on me, the spring houses, maybe a smaller one than I had. And I would put it much as close to the house as you can and get good solar exposure to it. And I would even consider running an extension cord out there and maybe providing some supplemental heat on the coldest nights during that early period of time. It doesn't take a lot of heat. Because remember, you're not trying to make it a nice, toasty, warm 72 degrees at night. You're just trying to keep it in like 35 instead of 32. So even a small uh, space heater on the lowest setting it'll go on in a small greenhouse will do that for you quite easily. Just some thoughts there. Um, but that's what I would do. Zone 5 and higher, you got to have a greenhouse as at a minimum. And with a greenhouse, you can do a lot of those plants types you're mentioning um, right through the winter. You can sow late fall, early fall, grow them through the winter, and then sow early spring and right into early summer. And then you can go out into your more. And with that greenhouse, a lot of the plants that you want, 
to put out there unprotected, you can get them really hardened off, really strong and really large in starter pots, and then put them out in the garden a week or two after your last frost date. So those are your tomatoes and peppers and uh, beans you usually don't start, but things like that. Um, so, okay, that's got my blood pressure down. My voice feels a little better. Let's go ahead, and I got two more kind of dark stories for you here today before we wrap up. Okay, this one comes from Mark, and Mark sends us a story uh, about my favorite bastion of the unprepared. The one place, the armpit of North America, when it comes to being totally unprepared and flying by the seat of your pants with your ass completely exposed and being in complete danger of even the most moderate emergency because nobody is prepared for freaking anything. Where else could I be talking about other than the home of the Kitchenista, New York City? Here's the headline on Fox News. 400 spend frigid night on a train in New York City nightmare. Let me read the article to you here. New York, it took hours for Christopher Mullen to get off the plane from sunny Cancun uh, and onto a half-empty subway car, his only way home. It would be another eight hours and more, a night spent huddled under a thin blanket on a frigid, grungy car before he could get off the A train. His feet soaked to the bone with no food, water, and hardly any heat. Mullen and 400 others lived through a New York nightmare on an elevated subway track, one of hundreds of stories of hardship caused by the crushing snowstorm that dropped more than two feet of snow on the Northeast. By the time they got off the subway shortly before 1 a.m. Monday near Kennedy Airport, Mullen and his girlfriend were well into their ordeal of battling the blizzard of December 2010. Their flight landed two hours late with snow whirling around the terminal The airport train was down. There were no taxis. Wearing just a light spring jacket, Mullen stood in the snow and attempted to dig his car out from a long-term parking. The only result, feet and legs that were soaking wet. When the couple, their diving gear and luggage in tow, boarded the A-train more than six hours after clearing customs, it seems they were finally on their way. But the subway got only to one stop before it was forced to halt on an open-air station platform in a forlorn corner of Queens near the airport in Jamaica Bay. Later, the NYC Transit spokesman Charles Seaton said, The cause was snowdrifts piled out on the outside tracks and thick layers of ice on the electrified third rail. If you want to read the rest of the article, you can. I don't want to beat up on these people, but why are, why are you bringing your freaking diving gear with you? What do you think if you're venturing out into the snow and you could get to your car, you couldn't dig it out, but you could get to it, Maybe you would get into your car instead of trying to dig it out and get away. Shove your diving gear in your car and take things that are more useful in that situation. Maybe keep the wetsuits. That might keep you warm. In fact, that's what I'll, I mean. If I had diving gear with me, maybe they were in Cancun. They probably didn't have wetsuits. They probably just had things like masks and fins and stuff that were pointless. I'd have left that crap in the car if, if I would have tried this at all. I mean, the other thing is, don't you think... The smart thing to do in that situation would have been to stay at the airport. Really? I mean, it sucks, but it sucks less than being stuck in a train. With that amount of snow, you know there's a potential for failure. Next, you notice they had no preparation for this whatsoever. No food, no water. We're supposed to feel sorry for them. And I do feel sorry for them to a degree, but I know that they were not the only ones like that. That pretty much everybody on that train was probably the same way. If you live in a northern climate, once we get into kind of the winter part of the year, don't you think they have, do you have, do you have some winter preps on you at all times? A small bag with some stuff. You know, a space blanket. Some water, some food, ration bars, things like that. Some means of defense that's legal in New York. You know, whatever that is, because a gun ain't. Pepper spray, something like that. I mean, imagine, you know, you're in that situation. What if somebody on that car is dangerous? Do you have any way to defend yourself from them? Just some thoughts, man. And this is not the only place this type of thing happened. There were people stranded all over America and Canada in this storm. Stranded on freaking highways and tollways. Winter weather is nothing to screw around with. It really isn't. And we need to be prepared for these things. Now, there's a limit to how prepared these people could have been. Coming back from vacation. They were lucky they landed, honestly. Uh, maybe they were unlucky they landed. They might have been luckier if they were diverted and sent somewhere else. They would have complained, got angry with the person behind the ticket counter. It doesn't really have anything to do with it. Been angry with the weatherman. Been angry with everybody. 
and not understand it's for their own safety, because that's how most people are. They're so self-centered. But they could have, at least in their cars, had a basic winter prep kit. And that way, if they would have decided to try to take the train, which probably seems... But I can see that, too, because a lot of times when nothing runs, the trains will. But at least they could have took that kit with them. But I guarantee you, they weren't even thinking that way. Here's the da the downside. They're probably not even thinking that way now. They're probably blaming the City of New York Transportation Authority. That's whose fault it is. Not their own fault for being completely soaked, trying to dig a car out when they weren't going anywhere with it anyway, dragging diving gear along and being completely unprepared. We can learn from this. We need to learn from the actions of other people so we don't have to go through this crap ourselves, folks. If you live in a northern climate, have a basic winter kit with you at all times. What I want to finish up with today is a little bit about that eighth crack in the economy and gas prices. Um, I've got an article here with um, a bunch of graphs on it that I'll, I'll let you link to. Or I'll give you a link to in the show notes. Um, but let me read, the because it's a short article, I'll just read it to you. It came out December 24th, by the way, Christmas Eve. Somehow the government is sticking with an outlook that sees crude oil prices not hitting triple digits until 2015. Let me say that again. The government has an outlook that says crude oil prices will not go back into triple digits, over $100 a barrel, until 2015. It is an estimate that would get smirks on Wall Street and get you laughed out of the room at the peak oil conference in D.C., Just look at the chart on the right to see why. The crude trend line from 2003 to 2008 headed for 120 and higher. It was only interrupted by the global recession. Now we're getting back on track, and oil cracked $90 this week. This chart comes from a uh, seminal peak oilist Chris Trubikowski's presentation at the ASPO-USA conference. And they have a bunch of graphs you can look at. And the best thing to do is... Go to the show notes today at the survivalpodcast.com and look at the graphs. But here's the basic concept of the graph. Right about January of 2004, oil prices were flat for a very long time, all the way back to 1999. Very, very flat. They started to go up, and they kept going up, and there was that peak up to 140 that was too high, and there was that drop down to like 35 bucks on the other side of the recession was too low. But now... We're coming right back in line with a trending line of that graph. If you just take a line and follow the upward trend from 2003 forward, which they have marked as the end of cheap oil, it, it's when any graph like this, when you look at a commodity, there's always a way where you can just kind of connect a low point and a, and a few other high points, and you get a trend uh, line. That trend line shows a continuous upward trend in pricing. And if you look into the future... Getting back to that trend line, we're not far away from it. We're getting very close to it now. The other thing is there's another graph on here that shows how much oil we're producing. And, <coughs> excuse me, folks, the reality is it's a fairly flat trend from 2004 till today. I'm going to say that again. Oil production is in a fairly, it's a little bit up, but it's nowhere near as much up as the trend in cost or trend in use But it's not growing. Oil production grew from 2001 to 2004 significantly. And from 2004 to 2010, it's grown very insignificantly. What does that tell us? I'm not a peak oil alarmist. But what it tells us is this. Peak oil or not, we are going to a point where we're pinching supply and demand closer together. Those two worlds are converging on top of each other. While we suffered... While we suffered the, this depression, China didn't. China grew at 8% a year for two years. India didn't really suffer either. Some sectors suffered, but the nation as a whole continued to grow. Russia has expanded its use of oil. Now, Russia produces most of its own oil. But if it starts using what it produces, it exports less. Which again affects the supply at the global level. And the dollar has strengthened and weakened and strengthened and weakened. But overall, we all know the dollar is actually getting weaker because of inflation, because we keep printing money. So, what does that mean for us? That means cheap gas is gone. I blew it two and a half years ago. I told you once it goes through three bucks, it'll never come back under three bucks. The next thing you know, gas was under two dollars. People were going, Jack, where'd you get it wrong? I didn't factor in the recession heavily enough. I just got it wrong. But I've learned from that mistake, 
and I've learned to, and I, when I made that mistake, I decided I didn't know enough about the oil and gas industry, and I started researching it like crazy, and I know where it's going now. It's going exactly where I said it was two and a half years ago, up. It just had to correct itself and come back in line with, with the trend. It was way out of whack. And now gas is about $3 again, national average. Now, there's a significance to $3 a gallon gas. In 2005, we did it the first time. And it stalled the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And then it the, the average fell a little bit. The gas prices came down. In 2006, the market was on its way back up. $3 gas hit, stalled it again. And this is all in my 8 Deadly Cracks article. Then gas prices came down and the market took off in the economic boom created by all the bullshit in real estate. That's what fuel, it was a real estate bubble. And it soared up into 2007. Then something happened that nobody really talked about. In 2007, $3 gas hit the market at an all-time high at the exact same moment. Because the market was already up. There was no, it didn't cap it. It started to push the market down. Our recession began not in the crash of 2008, but in the fall of 2007. I don't mean the fall like the descending, even though it was a fall. I meant the autumn of 2007. If you go look at my article, you'll see a graph on there of the Dow Jones average. And you'll see that in spite of one little blip as it was descending, that the market began its fall and fall, fell continuously. That $3 gallon gas slammed into a roaring economy. And because of that, the economy began to slow, but it slowed down a little at a time where people were lulled into a false sense of security. The gas kept going up, and it went up over $4. And by then, the market was in true decline, and then the housing bubble and everything else hit, and then, boom, it fell off the deep end. And then gas collapsed. Well, after it collapsed, we really haven't rebounded as a nation, have we? Our unemployment's higher than it was in 2008. People are spending less on gas than they were in 2008, even after the crash. None of the real problems in America have been corrected. We have just as many people, if not more, out of work. We have just as much curtailment of spending, yet gas has gone right back up to three bucks. What does this mean? Very bad for our economy. Now, I'm not saying $3 gas is the ultimate cap on the market. Inflation alone can fix that. $3 can effectively become $4 with 25% inflation over a few years. So understand, it's not a lock-solid number, but the reality is our economy runs on cheap oil. Everything about our nation runs on cheap oil. And there is a limit to what our rebounding growth can be as long as gas is expensive, and it's not going to go down now. It might here and there for little blips, but the overall trend is going to be continuously upward. And the only question with peak oil right now, for the doubters of peak oil, is how close we are. Are we 50 years away, or 15 years away, or 5 years away? I am not a soothsayer, I do not know. But I know that even if we're 50 years away, that when you look at the peak oil graph 100 years from now, that top bubble... If you, if you shorten the graph down, it's going to look like a great big point. If you stretch it out over time, it's going to look like a great big bell on top. It's going to, it's going to come up and it's going to be really ink. It's barely increasing, barely increasing for a lot, for a lot of years. And then barely decreasing for a lot of years before it falls off the other side. That top of that bell is a long sustained era. Cause there's a ton of oil out there still. And there's a ton of production capacity. But it doesn't mean it's not a nightmare for economies like the United States based on cheap oil in the top of that bell. It could be very well a death nail for us. Because one thing we do know, that's where we're paying $5 a gallon or more for gas. And I want to ask you, how many people that make moderate salaries can afford to pay that and go to work? So the only solution is inflation which is what your government is committed to. The problem is by inflating the dollar, we increase the cost of oil to the United States. We are, in many ways, I believe, now in an inescapable trap that has to play itself out. I'm going to bring this topic back. This is important. 
for a full show either later in the week or early next week. But I want you to understand something in our first show of 2011. The band is going to start playing, and it's going to be Happy Days Are Here Again. Don't believe the music. This is a public relations campaign. Our long-term outlook economically is quite dismal. Our long-term outlook as a people can be quite positive, but it's going to be up to us to make choices in our lives to be better prepared for the future, more so than at any time in the past. It's your choice. It's up to you. Um, that is it. I'm going to wrap up today. Again, I apologize. I know this is not my best show. Uh, it's very hard to get through today's show with my voice. Maybe I'll go out and buy some chloroseptic and gargle with it before the show or a couple times during it tomorrow. Uh, but I'm going to be here all week. I'm going to get through this with you. Your understanding until um, I get over this cold or whatever it is is greatly appreciated. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. On our TVs, sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the crowd You don't have to live the way they tell you to Someday we'll realize our children just can't pay. There's nobody up there cares. They're living for today. Revolution is you.